Good morning and welcome to Across the Apothecary. I'm here today with my guest, Dr. Jillian Mulvale from DeGroote and McMaster and all kinds of fun stuff. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. We're very excited. Um, I think you and I connected back in June. July or June, I'm not sure, but like somewhere that. around then. And it was a fantastic event that Haltech was holding here about innovation in health and tech. Um, and I was so excited about your presentation. Thank you. So I went and accosted you <laughs> <laughs> and said so hi. I'm geeking out a little. <laughs> I do have fangirl moments. It's sad. Um, so I'm so excited that you're here today to talk about this amazing app that you're developing. But I would love if we could start by you introducing yourself and sort of explaining how you got to where you are right now. Sure. Uh, so. Thanks, Elizabeth. I'm Jillian Mulvale, as you <laughs> indicated. I can start with that. Um, I'm, an an assistant, I'm an assistant professor here at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster, and I teach health policy. It's the uh, main course that I'm teaching at the moment, but I've also taught courses in healthcare funding and resource allocation. Um, and I do research largely in the area of mental health policy. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, my qualifications, how did I get here? Uh, I, it's a bit of a circuitous journey. I started in, <laughs> they all? in economics and uh, did an undergrad and master's in economics, worked as an economist for many, many years, and uh, then I had children. And <laughs> <laughs> little as, monkeys. As often happens, life takes some twists and turns, and yeah. became very interested in mental health and the mental health care system, and uh, realized that most of it didn't seem to fit well with my economics training, so I needed to go back and study it a bit. That's very true. So uh, at that point, I returned and did a doctoral degree here in health research methodology and took uh, a lot of emphasis on health economics and health policy analysis and other research methods. I'm so feeling slightly like an underachiever right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a great learning experience for me and uh, set me up for an opportunity to go and work with the brand new Mental Health Commission of Canada when it was Which formed. Which is amazing. And at the time, um, the Senate Standing Committee report had been released recommending the creation of the commission and calling for a national strategy. And I had the opportunity to be one of the first people working on that strategy. Wow. Um, I got to speak to people across the country in national consultations and really get a flavor from multiple perspectives of what was going on with the mental health care system. Which we'll I think was that. hugely missing before. It was sort of, we're all, we'll manage it all up here, mm -hmm. but who's on the ground actually discovering whether this is working and are we actually serving the community correctly? Right, and I think that was one of the um, strengths of the Out of the Shadows report that Michael Kirby had done national consultations to recommend the creation of the commission and then we continued that with the national strategy. And what I learned is that there is no one single viewpoint on what needs to be done and that we Very actually true. need to listen to all of those viewpoints. And I think that's really influenced me um, now since joining the group four years ago in my ongoing research here. Again, I'm a slacker. I'm a slacker. <laughs> it's all good. I've gone to college three times. I still feel like a slacker. But that's incredible and that's one thing. It's, I still find it quite shocking that people don't talk about mental health issues as much as they need to. And I was fortunate to um, volunteer at a recent event called Health Achieve. And Howie Mandel was there mm -hmm. discussing his issues. And I unfortunately, there was a glitch with staffing with the event that I was helping at. And I wasn't able to see it, but I thought, wow, if anybody's been a champion yes. for putting a face to it and saying, you know what? We all have struggles. We all have things. 
it touches your life in one way or another, and ignoring it doesn't make it okay. Absolutely not. And although we've come a long way, I think the commissions have played an important role in starting to open up the dialogue, and many others, people like Howie Mandel and many others. Um, we still know that you know one in five people will have a mental Something. disorder at some point in their lives. And the statistics I've heard is that by the age of 40, 50% of people will have been touched, right? And so that's not... I just raised my hand, which you can't see, but... <laughs> That's not small and closeted away. That's everyone, every family, everyone somewhere, somewhere or another. And so, uh, yeah, uh, we need to continue to work on the stigma piece. But mm -hmm. it's funny because one of my colleagues here at the Health Leadership Academy was talking about that presentation by Howie Mandel. I had to teach that day, so I couldn't be there for Aww. it. But uh, basically that he shook a lot of people up by making people realize this is everyone's issue and everybody is. is part of it. And that's something we really tried to communicate with the national strategy as well. I'm wondering if one of the, the misconceptions is that a mental health issue is for life versus a temporary situation. You know, like we were we were just joking about our kids and the stressful little monkeys that they are. And I had a hard time uh, after both my kids were only 13 months apart. Mm -hmm. My son was really sick. Yes. And you just have a moment. And I went to my physician and said, like, look, I'm having panic attacks and anxiety attacks and all this stuff because trying to balance everything. Unfortunately, their solution was medication, yes. which I was disappointed about. And I'll be honest with you, I took two. And the stress of taking two of those pills was worse. I, I stood there one day going, okay, what's, what's worse? The stress of taking the pill or finding a better way to deal with the stress and anxiety of having two small kids and one of which is sick? Pills left. Right. And I think you're raising a really important point here. And um, while I would never want to say, don't take medication. Oh, absolutely. That was my decision. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The question is, it is a personal experience and journey. And, uh, you know, a widely held uh, viewpoint or perspective in mental health that's emerged over the years, sadly coming from a system that was you know, very patriarchal at one oh, point absolutely. in time and excluding God people complex. and all of the rest of it, um, uh, is that it, people need to be empowered and that they're on journeys absolutely. of recovery. This notion of a recovery orientation that people aren't always sick for life. Um, they may have episodes of illness. They may have a few panic attacks. It, it, there's a whole range yeah. out there and we can't stereotype people into, you know, slot them one way. And we also know that the causes can be multifactorial. And so sometimes it's biomedical, sometimes it's psychosocial, sometimes it's what's going on in your life right now, mm -hmm. um, what you're trying to deal with. And certainly stress postpartum is one of those things potentially that could have many, many causes and therefore oh, many, absolutely. many solutions. And I think one of the challenges is that we don't always look at all of those solutions, that we have highly trained professionals with different expertise, mm -hmm. and how do we coordinate all of those resources around the needs of an individual is one of the key things that I try to look at in my research, and more, as I'm not a clinician, right, economics and health policy, <laughs> I don't pretend to be, and uh, have great respect for those who are, um, but we need to think from the perspective of the person who's going through it, what will assist them in their own recovery? And when we use that term recovery, we're speaking about um, recovery of a meaningful life. It doesn't always mean the exact same thing as clinical recovery. Um, not to say people won't get better, they mm -hmm. will, um, but it may not be uh, 
just as a person with diabetes may still have the underlying condition and yet be able to go out and live a meaningful life. Absolutely. We want to ensure that the stigma of mental illness and the side effects of treatment or self-stigma that can result from that doesn't keep people from you know, being socially engaged and uh, living the best mm -hmm. life they can lead. And that's a recovery orientation. Well, they start to think that they have a red dot on their forehead and everybody can see it. Yeah. And the, the flip side of that is I share, so my, and we've talked about this before, I think, my son is autistic. Mm -hmm. It's extremely high functioning with Asperger's, but it is, you know, his brain just works a little differently. And if I meet anybody who's having a challenge, if their child is newly diagnosed or something's going on, and, and with my son's, you know, relative permission, I mean, he's 18 now, so it's called like mom. And I'm like, you know what, buddy? These people need to know they're not alone. Absolutely. They need to know that another family's gone through it, that you're doing really well. Here are some of the things that we've used. Or if I run into somebody who's struggling with anxiety and panic attacks or whatever, I'm like, oh, pff, me too. Like, you know, slap a high five and let's chat it out. And, and usually that's all you need. Often that's the case. And of course, we don't want to minimize it. There's times when it's much oh, more absolutely. serious than that. Absolutely. But we do need to you know, be aware that there is an awful lot that we're coping with. And, um, you know, the risk of paying too much attention to mental illness is everyone gets labeled and diagnosed with something that's um, adjustment to normal life events, uh, developing resilience in the face of challenges that's actually good for their mental health in the long run, although it feels terrible <laughs> in the short run. Yeah. Right? Short-term pain, so long-term gain. It's finding, um, you know, making sure that we're devoting our resources to those who actually need it because resources are limited. Absolutely. And finding ways, I think, as a society to help each other when we don't actually need clinical intervention, right? And that's the mm -hmm. kind of uh, support that you're talking about. And I think there's an important role as well for peer support, for people who've been there or who are you know, continuing to uh, struggle with challenges in sharing what they're learning and what's working for them. And that could be a whole gamut of things. So you made an interesting reference to, um, to the journey. And one of the things that, one of the, well, the main reason that we're here today is um, during the Hall Tech event, you are creating a tool mm -hmm. to make that journey for those in the mental health system. And again, short-term, long-term, temporary condition, long-term condition. Um, and that's one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you about the stigma component, because during that mental health journey, you're dealing with a wide variety of people. And like any situation, you don't always click some, with somebody, or you really do, or whatever. But when you're dealing with a mental health issue, sometimes wanting to give that feedback that is necessary for that clinician's growth and understanding and broadening their awareness is challenging for the person who's dealing with the issue. So I'd love to talk about this amazing thing that you've created. And, and I have a very colorful sheet that I will share with everybody, but um, can you please talk about this amazing tool that you're creating? Sure, so um, what you're- been around a lot. What you're referring to, Elizabeth, is an app uh, or a suite of apps that uh, my research team and I have developed uh, along with a software developer, We Us Them, um, that captures experiences, people's experiences as they journey through the mental health system. This app was developed for youth uh, aged 16 to 25 uh, was our target. Uh, we call them transition-aged youth, or the Mental Health Commission calls them emerging adults, because they're really... It makes them sound like butterflies. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, 
it's, it's the latest terminology. Um, I, I always think we should go back to the people themselves and say, what would you like to be called, rather yeah. than what do, yeah. what do we come up with? What label do we put on you? Mm -hmm. And um, it, uh, the reason we're targeting that age group is we know they're highly at risk yes. uh, for falling through the cracks in the system. Um, traditionally, it's sister, that's my son. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, traditionally in Ontario, the way we've set up our uh, ministries and our services as a result of that, our funding uh, goes up to the age of 18 for child and youth services, that's one ministry, and then 18 plus, mm -hmm. you're now an adult, and it's another ministry, so we go from Ministry of Child and Youth Services, funding uh, services to Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care, mm -hmm. and then of course it gets more fractious when you start thinking primary care and what's covered under OHIP, uh, hospital and what's physicians, primary? what's community-based mental health care, and to the person who just needs services. It's overwhelming. They don't have really much interest in who's paying for what or how, why there's different rules. They just need continuity of care as they bridge across multiple services. And certainly for this age group where there's so much developmental change going on, you may be moving from high school to a secondary school or the workplace, uh, uh, sorry, uh, not secondary, post-secondary post or the workplace. You may be leaving home for the first time. Uh, to have a disruption when you may have been you know, quite successfully supported in youth services uh, can be really difficult. And so it also means because these are all separate um, services, uh, data collection is all distinct um, and not necessarily well shared um, mm -hmm. across these organizations. Um, and all of them are dealing with shortages of resources, not enough, not enough, not enough. And so for the young person, it can mean that there's a long wait to get into adult services, even if they have been successfully treated in child services. Could be poor information flow, starting all over again, telling their it story, long wait lists. In a nutshell, it's a real risk point and a priority for ministries of health you know, across the country uh, at the provincial level, but also at the national level. And so we thought, well, what if we could put data collection in the hands of the young person who's going through services? Mm -hmm. Then they are the common thread as they move across school-based services, hospital, uh, community, primary care, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And what if at the same time we're empowering them, which is a key theme around a recovery orientation, to give their feedback, to share their experience, and use that to inform service design, which is something we've all been talking about. How do we get mm -hmm. patient care for years and years and years, but how do we actually do that in practice? So we developed this app as part of a research study uh, using an experience-based co-design approach. And that approach um, says we need to use experiences of the people using services and their family members, their experiences, and their service provider experiences and look at all three of those together in mm -hmm. order to come up with service design that's going to work from all three perspectives. So for me, that really echoed my experience in the consultations with the Mental Health Commission that I spoke about earlier. We need this to work from all three perspectives, yeah. and perhaps even more, certainly policymakers as well, but currently that's not the key theme of this approach. Um, we'll certainly be sharing that subsequent. So in the design of the app, we said, okay, let's youth love their smartphones, they're very comfortable sharing information there. Mm -hmm. If we can set this up in uh, 
a private way that is you know, respectful of their confidentiality and so forth, meets all of our ethical principles, here we have an opportunity where they may be more comfortable sharing. Absolutely. Rather than sitting down and talking to someone like me. I mean, heck, they Snapchat. And, I mean, and I do social media, so I say this respectfully, but I think that one-step removal mm -hmm. from providing that feedback, sitting down from the clinician or the counselor or what have you with whom you have a trusting relationship and having to potentially say, you know what, you actually made me feel bad. Right. You didn't have a great time here. That would be a huge thing to overcome. I think a, a barrier that most youth would just choose to say whatever they think that person wants to hear. Absolutely. Which doesn't help the clinician. Whether you're a youth or an adult, if you are in a relationship with a provider and you are vulnerable because of stigma and a mental illness and not feeling yourself, who's gonna you know, come forward with honest criticism yeah. that's constructive. It's a very difficult power imbalance that you're dealing with and it makes it very hard to do that face-to-face. -face. Kudos to those who can, but I think I would find it challenging. Oh, I do. And so if you're a young person even more, so they're facing a double stigma, the stigma of youth and the stigma of mental illness and you know, it's yeah. a lot. So we thought, okay, we'll start small. Let's develop this app. We'll use it for research purposes um, to see can we sort of very quickly gather uh, people's experiences following each appointment as they journey through mental health services and associated services, but also we've developed a web application for family members and service providers so that we gather their experiences as well after each visit. So after each encounter... So there's multiple touch points available. We get the, the three perspectives on every visit. Um, even if the family member did not actually attend the appointment, which we know often happens with this age group, they're very often very involved in child services, but once the youth moves to adult services, they're often completely cut out. And so uh, we want to know what that experience is like, not knowing what's going it's on. scary for me to you. <laughs> it's very as, scary. As well as, you know, other aspects of it. So um, what we learned in, in our research around developing the app is, you know, for this age group, it's got to be quick. It's got to be fun. It's got to be engaging, uh, bright and colorful. You can imagine if you're depressed, you need... Uh, big buttons. You don't want to be like struggling with um, mm -hmm. a technology that's difficult to use. You're having difficulty concentrating or you're anxious. You've got to make it easy for people to use. Um, and so that's what we have done to date. Um, the data right now all comes to a secure server at McMaster University. And uh, we've gathered experiences. We've attempted to do it over a one-year period. Of course, that's challenging as youth move in and out of crisis and their lives are mm -hmm. volatile at this stage often. Um, but we have gathered enough data to know that it certainly works. In terms of the kinds of things you're talking about, uh, hearing youth, or not hearing, but seeing what youth have put into the app saying, I was with this service for eight years and I had eight different providers and not once did I feel respected in my entire Which time there. I think you shared that. I just got a shiver because I think you shared that during our previous discussion, which right. just floors me. And so not once feeling comfortable to come forward with that, so but willing eight years lost. But willing to type that yeah. in, in an app, right? In a very short space. And then we had another youth who uh, shared with us that they were not comfortable receiving what was a highly invasive therapy that they were receiving. And that came through the app. And if we don't respond to that and recognize that discomfort, then we could lose the youth from all services for the rest of their lives.
So working in this field, it can be very you know, discouraging at times and eye-opening, but on the other hand, to find such a simple tool can give you these kinds of insights. On the other side, we've heard very positive feedback from youth. It's not all negative. You know, I've been in the support group. It's my last night. I'm leaving. Um, I'm a little bit nervous about that, but I'm feeling pretty good. They've, they've offered us a monthly check-in once a month, Aww. and so I think that I'll be okay. You know, and hearing... So, so experience-based co-design is really about getting at the feelings, the touch points in people's um, experiences where their experiences are really powerfully shaped, so wherever there's a really strong emotional response. Mm -hmm. And we weren't sure if an app could do that in the same way an interview could, which is how it's traditionally done. The downside of doing an interview after the fact is you're not getting the nuance of what's going on at each stage of the journey. But you're, you're putting that barrier back up. I had to, to substantiate. Um, with Asperger's syndrome, for those of you that don't know, social engagement can be a real challenge. Mm -hmm. It can be a real barrier to a lot of things. And in the extreme end for Asperger's, they don't recognize facial change at all. So if I were sitting here smiling, they would have no clue that I was happy. Mm -hmm. If I was, they can't use that as part of their conversation. And uh, tried to get my son into self-contained learning because he's also ADD and dyslexic. And I had to have a conversation with the superintendent of education because we were going grade seven, eight. And she said, well, you know, we have concerns about grade seven and eight because of the social relationship development that happens in those grades. And I honestly had to stop and go, okay. I said, I'm sorry, but do you know anything at all about Asperger's syndrome? And she says, well, as a matter of fact, I do. And da, 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 da. And I said, well, I beg to differ because if you actually knew anything about it or had ever lived with it, you'd know that the social component is the barrier to my son's education. Right. To have to handle those relationships, to have to develop those skills and whatever, right now, just not important to us. We are taking care of his social outside of school. Right. Stop making this a barrier to his education. And I can't imagine if you have that challenge where you're already feeling socially stigmatized, you're already dealing with a lot of feelings, and then you have to sit down across from somebody, the pressure on that would be unbelievable. I mean, how could you give, you said before, kudos if you can, right? but are you going to get authentic data that's applicable and appreciable by the clinician or the support worker? I don't think so. Very difficult. And I think, you know, the story you've just told is once again illustrating the power and the importance of lived experience and that we can all think we understand the perspective of the person mm -hmm. that we're speaking with, but we don't because we haven't lived it. And yeah. it's so critical that we look at each encounter from all three of those perspectives, right? And then we give them an opportunity, you know, the next phase of the research, once we've collected this data, and, and that's what we're working with right now in a number of studies, mm -hmm. is to bring together participants and say, how do we co-design solutions? Now that we have better mutual understanding of experiences and perspectives, mm -hmm. I get it that uh, typically, if I'm a healthcare provider and I'm inundated with complaints, I'm feeling a little bit defensive when I get going here, right? Yeah, that's true. And if I'm a young person um, and I'm feeling vulnerable because of stigma or my voice isn't being heard, I've got a, bit, a bunch of stuff I'm bringing to the table. And mm -hmm. if I'm a family member who's been frustrated over and over again, mm -hmm. I probably have a whole lot of anger that I'm bringing to the oh, table. Oh, I'm that mom. <laughs> well, then you're not alone, <laughs> I am, right? I am totally that mom. <laughs> and, and you're not alone, right? And so by 
fostering opportunity for really understanding each other's perspective, now we can start to have real dialogue and come up with solutions that, no, maybe we can't restructure the whole healthcare system. Maybe we don't have a magic wand with, you know, tons of money that we can suddenly throw at this, although that would be but wonderful, be and we need that. Mm -hmm. um, but perhaps That'll be the can, next part of the conversation. <laughs> but perhaps we can come up with some solutions, some workarounds that work from everybody's this is perspective. phenomenal. Like as soon so. as I, I saw your talk and had a chance to speak to you, and, and my perspective, because of personal experience and what have you, was when I say, so I'll be sharing these images with you, but one of the cool um, panels on this is how did you feel when you arrived and the burden on language is removed the burden on you know collecting that abstract thought around emotion is removed because there's a simple scale of happy faces happy and sad mm -hmm. which I just went that's so simple but so amazing because this to me could go like we started in the mental health system with my son when he was two yes um seven was around the crucial okay this is what's going on phase and he had a real challenge telling us about how he was feeling about things because you know, he's much much better now this would have been incredible to put that in front of a seven-year-old read the thing to them but then let them choose right and from that age even if it's ever possible to start empowering them so young i i was blown away like it's such an amazing idea I think it is because, um, as you say, particularly for a younger child, uh, as I said, we designed this for older, um, from 16 to 25, but I mean, the basic premise here can be modified, right? The design can be modified to the age group and, mm -hmm. and tablet or and you know, we started with an incredibly low budget. Um, great thanks to the Ministry of uh, Ministry. Research and Innovation <laughs> for funding this as an Ontario Early Researcher Award, but it didn't pay for software development. It, that, that award is, is really geared toward um, uh, supporting graduate students um, as a learning opportunity for them as the research is ongoing, and it, you know my team has benefited tremendously from that. But we did have a very small budget for actual software design. There's so much more that could be added to this. Oh my There's gosh, no yeah. voice recording option here, which there could be for uh, younger children to just speak into it, for example. Uh, photo voice, where people can take images and upload those oh, about their experiences wow. could be very powerful. Again, we didn't have it in this version of the app. Um, but depending on, and, and I think there's such tremendous potential for the future to use this not just as right now research data coming to us to analyze and move forward, but for ongoing quality improvement in the system. Um, if this was being shared with the healthcare provider, um, they can make, they can adapt on the fly, right? Exactly. And it could go into accountability mechanisms, right? How are we performing? Where do we need to look at what we're doing and what's working well and what isn't? And give service providers a voice in that as well, mm -hmm. right? They're part of that improvement process and families. So you're looking for, for allied health professionals as well as um, clinicians and so a, a broader spectrum? Yes, well certainly um, it can be broadened. Um, as I say right now, there is no restriction on the type of health care provider. So we are using this right now in multiple organizations um, from hospitals to community-based mental health services, um, uh, large and small. and. Uh, you know, it's, it's only a small number, a small sample right now of people who are using it, but it's meant to be uh, very neutral so that 
you don't have to be at a particular stage of the journey where you use this. The language is not meant to imply that you're right now in child services or adult services. It's just no. meant to be very neutral. What is your experience of, uh, it, it looks at each appointment as you arrive, your relationship with the provider, information sharing, family involvement. There's just several key domains, continuity of care, mm -hmm. that we tap into in a very brief uh, 11 screens, and that's the key thing about using an app. You can't make it long. It's not like a long questionnaire. So it has some disadvantages compared with a qualitative interview where you can go into more de depth. But balancing you said there was a that, desktop version as well, though, so maybe then the desktop version could become that longer it could. The desktop version is really um, uh, was just a funding restric restriction, and uh, at the time we were trying to understand each user what they would like best. Mm -hmm. We felt the smartphone had to be the way to go with young people because of their use of that and this technology. Is, this is um, iPhone and Android. It is, and then uh, for family member and service provider, at the time we were told some family members are more computer. Uh, more comfortable with the computer than mm -hmm. the I with the, the phone, and and we felt that service providers would have access at work, and that would it makes sense to have cross platform. Yeah, and so mm -hmm. as I say, there's there's lots of flexibility on how it could be formulated. That's how it is right now. Well, I'm, and I'm and I could be wrong, so please tell me if I'm mm -hmm. wrong. But I think the last time we spoke, you also mentioned that once this starts moving forward, it could be also branded to the particular healthcare. Well. Certainly in some of the organization I spoke, organizations I've spoken to are very interested in the app and applying it. Um, it could indeed be something that becomes a signature feature. Um, we care about our patients. We care about their experiences. Yeah. And we're, we're here interested to make it easy as possible. To make it, yes, to make it as easy as possible. And this is one of our distinguishing um, characteristics is that you know, we want to engage you on an ongoing basis. We've lowered the barrier to entry on that kind yeah. of thing. So one of the other things that we talked about, so I, Honestly, if you were, if you have a, a moment, I'm going to try and share as much as we're allowed and can, um, image-wise, with you, so that you can see what's going on here. So, as Dr. Mulville mentioned, um, there is a need in the future plans for funding. There is a need for partners on this. There is uh, an ongoing need to have healthcare providers uh, in the mental health industry. I hate to use the word industry, but in the mental health industry so that you can continue, as you said, it called it experiential co-design? Experience-based co-design. Mm -hmm. um, this is meant to be for you. This is meant to be, and I'm, by you, you, I mean the audience here. Um, it is meant to make your job easier. It is meant to make your patients happier, your clients happier. It is meant to provide the best service possible and it can't happen unless there are people. I mean, I'm starting to sound like one of those PBS pick up the phone things. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> yeah, but that's, I mean, that's not the goal. Um, but I mean, from a personal perspective, I don't approach people to interview them unless I see the value in it. Thank you. That's all I, that's the only way I can put it. So I might sound like a PBS infomercial right now, but it's because I'm very enthusiastic about trying to find people to help make this happen. I've been through this system. I've been through this with my son. And it, it breaks your heart to watch your kid not be able to get what they need. And I've had so many conversations with teachers and service providers and what have you to the point where I'm so blunt and said, look, if you don't get my kid, that's fine, but get out of the way for somebody who does. Mm -hmm. Because it is critical to my son's success that you get my kid. And without this kind of honest feedback from the kid, even as a parent, I can be whistling in the dark, thinking that I'm doing the right thing, right. 
And meanwhile, my child who has a communication issue, I mean, my son's a highly, highly verbal, but there are still aspects of his communication that are challenged that this would allow for. Right. And I will bet you, we would have had a much different experience within the mental health system. We did have a great one. We were very fortunate. We were with Erin um, Oak, uh, Children's Services. But I bet it would have been better. I just, I firmly, firmly believe that. So I, I, I believe in this product. I believe in this app. I think it's an amazing thing that has to happen. And um, the trust that happens in a relationship with somebody this is, this is critical and it's, it can be seen as something that's hard for the patient to overcome right. if they've had a bad experience. And this allows them that almost anonymous, I mean. It is, it's almost anonymous. And this is where, you know, from an ethical perspective, you have to be very careful, right, that uh, there's really clear um, explanation mm -hmm. of who's getting this data, how is it being used, what are the bounds on it, and am I comfortable with that? So. Unlike the research application that we're seeing now, I think that if you were to take this forward uh, to more ongoing service improvement, it would be each time. Are you comfortable sharing this? You know that we have to be. Yeah, it you know, has to be very, full disclosure. But very clear, right? Yeah. Um, but I think the other point you made about um, service providers—it it truly is to be an improvement for everyone, because not just in this study, but in other research that we have going on. Um, it's very clear that you know service providers want to do a fantastic job. They're mm -hmm. terrific, and uh, if we can give them tools that make that better, um, that can that actually lead to change, because they would love to see change too. Um, we're hearing how frustrating it is. Uh, another study we have going on right now. I mean, one of the quotes is, um, you know, I, I feel like I just send them off into a black hole. This is a youth provider. You know, when they leave, they leave, and, and I don't hear anymore. And, that's a difficult Scary. experience for the service provider who has developed, worked with a young person and developed rapport and seen success, and then they're worried what happens with them when they mm -hmm. go to adult services, and yet our structures right now end the communication at that point, and they, they do. really don't know what's happening. So this is about improvement, ideally, from all three perspectives, and that's um, where we're excited, and, and we'll see how it plays out. It's research. We'll see how it plays out in practice. So just listening to what you're saying, there's a friend of mine who runs... Uh, group home in, I want to say Mississauga. Um, so would there be potential for application for this in the social services? And like, yeah. I, I see it as unlimited. Yeah. Well, um, we have a number of um, uh, organizations that provide housing to youth who otherwise would not have housing. They're mm -hmm. using it right now. So. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So it's quite, quite broad in application. We try to sort of, you know, this is qualitative research. This is clearly not, you know, a statistical sample at this point. Yeah. Um, it's uh, about being very purposeful and selecting where should we try this um, and would it apply. And so we've kind of gone in that approach um, to date in our research. Amazing, amazing. So I know you are looking to talk to people about this. Mm -hmm. um, would you like to provide contact information or shall we? Sure, I mean the easiest is my email. Okay. It's, I'm Jillian Mulvale, so I keep it simple. It's mulvale at mcmaster.ca. Is it Mulvale G? Uh, no, it's just Mulvale. Oh, there you go. So that it's was just M-U-L-V-A-L-E at mcmaster.ca. So I'll be doing a, um, a blog post about this as well, so I'll get some more contact information from you and I'll provide some links and what have you, but if you are a service provider within the healthcare industry around mental health, social services, of course my personal is, is autism, um, please get in touch. 
we need to find ways to make this happen. I know I've gone to the PBS side again. <laughs> we'll call it my Darth Vader PBS thing. Um, and if you're a funder and you're feeling philanthropic and you want to get involved, money's great. <laughs> it makes a big difference. Money makes the world go round. And, uh, and this app needs to happen. And it needs to happen soon. So thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. And now the, the app's called My Experience. My Experience, yeah. yeah. And uh, it's just fun and colorful and amazing. And, and I just I see it in the world. It's going to happen. Thanks, Elizabeth. All right, my PBS is over. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, everybody. I, um, I hope you've learned a little more about the mental health situation and how tech and innovation can have a huge impact on not only uh, the people who are in the industry um, from a patient perspective, but the importance of how this can affect how services are delivered, how clinicians and service providers can do a better job because it is what they want to do. It's, it's what they were in the industry to do, and, uh, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much, and have a great day. Bye-bye.